Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor and author Octavia Spencer. Pretty early in our conversation, Octavia Spencer told me that she loves a good mystery. Well, me too. For example, how does a dyslexic girl with severe stage fright become an actress and then an author? And when someone close to her told her not to go to Hollywood because it was only for beautiful people, why was she not furious? If you saw Octavia on the screen before the help, you could be forgiven for thinking she was a nurse. It's a role she's played at least 30 times, and she's a little tired of checking people's blood pressure. The help brought her to wide attention and earned her an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. And then Hidden Figures came along, which also earned her an Oscar nomination. She was finally telling important, untold stories, but also feeling confined to a certain era and role. That brought up another mystery for me. Then why play a 1960s cleaning woman in Guillermo del Toro's new film, The Shape of Water? Her answer says a lot about who she is as a person and as an artist. Recently, Octavia put some of her hardest work and hardest won wisdom in a kid's detective book, which inspired me as much as it did my daughters. But Octavia has always bet on herself, and that alone is a great message. You'll hear many more in this episode. You'll also hear the only way you'll ever get her to play another nurse and what you'd better not say to her if you see her in the grocery store. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. It was very nice of you to come all the way to Santa Monica. Hey, you know, Santa Monica's a place too. Yeah? (laughs) You brought us a pie. Do you get the pie thing a lot? A lot. Is that the thing, like, when people come up to you on the street, is that the thing that they reference the most? It is the thing that they reference the most. Which is the weirdest icebreaker in the world. It really is, especially if you're, like, grocery shopping, (laughs) which has happened to me more times than you can ever imagine. The first time it happened, you know, I'm in there with sweatpants, and I'm thinking, I'm going to run in, run out. My hair is, like you know, a sumo wrestler on top of my head. I'm in giant sunglasses and I'm checking melons or I'm checking avocado. And somebody leans in and says, eat my blank. And I'm like, really? And then you have to like, oh, wait a minute, because you, I, mean, I don't know, people think you're constantly walking around <laughs> thinking about the help, yeah. that you're going to know what they mean. But yeah, yeah that's, that's happened a lot. And then you're like, oh, and they're smiling as, you know, with a bit of recognition. Right. 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 And I'm like, no. Not you don't ever go up to a strange woman and say that. <laughs> <laughs> Not ever. Yeah, that's bold. It's pretty bold. Yeah. Well, that's a funny thing to think of because, um, you know, you, you, do a, you do this whole career's worth of work, but you, you play a part that gets that much attention, mm-hmm. and it becomes like a shorthand for people, right? Yeah. But I guess that's sort of what you're also working towards, right? I mean, better that than the other. You know, I, 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 I'm not complaining because <laughs> I could certainly, nobody could know me or know that line. And, um, and you know, there's that. But, um, you know, I, I feel grateful to be doing what I love doing, especially at a time when, you know, a lot of people are unhappy. There's a lot of darkness going around right now. So yeah. I get to be happy every day that I get to show up. 
and do what I love doing. I'm yeah. thrilled with that. Well, I've had a good time this week going through and re-watching some stuff and watching some new things. And one thing I notice in your acting, and I think this is the hallmark of great actors, is that you can form a thought in your head and that thought comes out through your expression. Oh, thank and, you. And I wondered if when you were a kid, if that quality ever got you in trouble. Yes. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> oh, honey. My mom, oof, you, you learn to, the funny thing is, growing up in my house, you have to learn to cloak your feelings and your emotions, literally. You have to do the opposite of what an actor has to mm -hmm. learn to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got in trouble a lot with, you know, and, it, and then she would like, I guess my face would be so easily just belying my inner thoughts. And it's like, I'm either going to be angry or I'm going to laugh. And I, I'm glad that a few times she laughed, you know, and I really? didn't get into a lot of trouble. But I, I, I it definitely, I had to be very, very cautious with, with emotions. Did you grow up in a strict household? I grew up in a strict household. My mom was a strict disciplinarian, thank God. Really? Mm-hmm. Why do you say thank God? Well, I look around in the world today and, uh, you know, I grew up Southern. And I just, it's funny when you see kids who there's no deference to people who are older than them. There's no deference to their own parents. And I, I look and I'm thinking, ooh, tantrum. My mom would never, ever allow that. Really? All she had to do, <laughs> if there was a, I don't want to do this. That was it, just a look. She would give you a look and you were like, oh no, oh no. Okay, I better, I better shut this down so we can smooth things over, smile, be bright and sparky and shiny. Yeah, no, she did not play that. God, you know, I don't know if it's the times have changed or... I'm too soft because I grew up in a, a very strict household as well. And now with my girls, like, they, they can walk all over me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't scare them. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to talk to you about The Shape of Water mm -hmm. because it's a crazy film. It is. Guillermo del Toro mm -hmm. made this film, and, and, and it's sort of the anti-hidden figures in a way mm -hmm. because it's not the government getting together to do great things for humanity. It's the government at its worst, mm -hmm. kind of. And, and kind of presents a darker version mm -hmm. of reality. authority and yeah. reality. Yeah. And, but what I wanted to ask you about was, um, I read something about the meeting you had with Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if, you know, because on the surface, okay, you're playing a woman who, she's a cleaning lady, right? Mm -hmm. like, was it his job to convince you that, that this was going to be an interesting film and an interesting character. And well, <laughs> you're going to be very surprised because we met, it was a, a coffee, like breakfast time, and it right. was probably supposed to be maybe 30 minutes, and we went into lunch. Really? Um, because we just hit it off so perfectly. And we only talked about the film the last five minutes of the meeting as we're gathering our things to leave. And so I think it was more um, convincing himself that he wanted to work with me and uh, me perhaps uh, like, is this a real project? Is it going? And do I want to work? Because you spend a lot of time uh, away from home. And you, so you want to like the people that you work with. Where did you film that? We filmed it in Toronto. Okay. 
And uh, so I, all, I didn't know anything about the part. Uh, the, the part. All he told me was, uh, you know, that she was a character who was empowered. And um, he just wanted to know my thoughts on it. He didn't tell me anything else about it. And of course, I was, the minute they said Guillermo del Toro, because I have seen everything in his repertoire and I love his work. So I wanted to do it. And I've turned down other cleaning ladies and maids. Um, but what I felt that he did so beautifully, he didn't make it my character playing a, a woman in the 60s. I played, she will be the third woman that I played in the 60s. Right, the help and yeah, the hidden help, figures. Hidden figures. But this, for the first time, I felt like I wasn't playing anything having to do with my race. Right. And for the first time, it felt like I was playing a contemporary woman because all of the things that I talk about um, are, was, are what most people talk about. I was complaining about my relationship and my husband. And that, for the first time for me, felt very contemporary. It was like a breath of fresh air, really. So interesting because we've seen you in the roles that you've selected or you've gotten, mm -hmm. but we haven't seen the sheer number of scripts that you've seen. Mm -hmm. So you maybe have a better or more accurate understanding of the way the world sees you and your role in, in films. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, was it all the more surprising that, that that was the case? I mean... Absolutely. Guillermo also is, he is uh, a man with uh, an immensely beautiful heart. And that's why it's a it's a strange love story, but there are all different types of parallels going on. The love that Giles and um, and Eliza have as friends, the love that uh, Eliza and and my character we have as friends, the deference that we have for each other that no one else has. You have uh, a black woman who's a cleaning lady, a deaf uh, Latin woman who's a cleaning lady. Um, that the rest of the world doesn't see. You have a gay man who's closeted that the rest of the world doesn't see, but we see each other and we're important in each other's um, ethos. Right. And so the fact that he wrote his two main characters can't talk. And the two people that he chooses to have be their voices, a uh, strident black woman with a heart of gold and a closeted gay man. Um, says a lot about what he thinks about society. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is, I had to read it like three times because there's so much going on. The, the allegorical elements are yeah, beautifully and very sure. intricate. And I got to tell you, 98% of the roles that I'm offered have everything to do with me being um, a black woman. And so I've kind of stopped accepting things that have anything to do with me being black. Because if you can't look at me and tell that I'm black, there is something wrong. <laughs> I hate to have to tell you guys, I'm a Nate, black woman. <laughs> a black woman. If you didn't know, um, I gotta let you in on a little secret. And Nate's so, our blind sound man. Yeah. So. <laughs> you should have been now in the you're movie. you're in on it. You're in on it, sound man. <laughs> So I'm I'm now just really excited. I'm sorry he came and touched your face when it's you got okay. here. It's yeah. okay, but he he can tell you that black feels exactly the same as white. That's right. Maybe smoother. Blind sees no color. <laughs> Blind sees no color. It feels you know That's product. Terrible. It feels product on the skin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we got off track a little bit there, sorry. but um, but what you say at the heart of that, 
it may come as a surprise to a lot of people mm -hmm. because it's easy to also think, okay, you watch The Help and you mm -hmm. watch Hidden Figures and you mm -hmm. go, these are important films to teach people something. In the case of Hidden Figures, I think the fact that no one knew that story, right. a black woman didn't know that history and yeah. a white dude didn't know that history, that, yeah. that these women helped put men in space. So on that, on that end you go, well, I want to represent that and I want to tell that story because that's an important part of history. Mm -hmm. But it's surprising and notable on the other side and it's like, I also don't just want to be a vehicle to do those things right. all the time or to be right. just seen that way. That's exactly right. Sometimes you just want to, you know, have a heist movie or be in a romantic something and something goes wrong and then you find your soulmate. I mean, so, you're just irreverent. So the fact that Guillermo wrote this fairy tale with elements about the real world and um, some historical fiction fictional elements in it. But then he wrote two very contemporary women. Eliza stands up for herself a lot. She stands up for my character. Um, they don't understand what she's saying when she's signing and being, right. you know. And um, we should say she's played by Sally Hawkins. She's played by Sally Hawkins, definitely. Eliza played by Sally Hawkins. But she's, you know, she, she stands up for herself. Well, I'm curious, when you get the script and she doesn't say anything, how do you as an actor start thinking about, okay, how, how, how am I going to play this? <laughs> like, that must have been a bit of a challenge. I had cold sweats because I learned my dialogue by memorizing it, you know, from cues from the other characters. That's your process, is to learn it. Oh, and there that... are no cues from Eliza. Right. So I was like, oh, the scenes where it's just the two of us and I'm basically just rambling on like an idiot is uh, those were hard to do because you have to you have to learn them so well to throw them away so that they feel effortless and and not that you're it's not that you're not accounting for the, the other person's opinion but you know the other person's not going to have a verbal response right so it was difficult getting ready for the movie in that regard and then Guillermo wanted both of us to learn uh, American Sign Language, and we also learned it as it was during that time period. Really? So Sally and I were taking sign language classes, and we didn't know if we were ever how we were going to use our secret language um, in front of um, uh, Michael Shannon's character. Um, but then I realized, well, I know that she can hear me, and the only other times that I would sign to her is to say something that we don't want anyone else to know, right. any of the other girls to know. But when you're in front of the boss, you can't really have the secret language. Secret language. So, um, you know, I learned it, but there weren't really times that felt organic to use it. But just the act of learning it, did it give you some sort of, like, did it ground you in knowing who your character was? It did. She wasn't, uh, I, I knew my character. I, I knew her in and out. It was like a breath of fresh air. I, I felt like she is uh, the child of Minnie Jackson and Dorothy Vaughn. If you just put them together, this is, this is who you have. You have Zelda um, because all of those women share something. They, they live in a, at a time when things are, um, Again, tumultuous is the word that I would use to describe the 60s. And, yeah. well, we're feeling some of that tumult right now um, uh, in our society. But all of those women had no agency. 
do you realize that playing these women at this time, none of them have the right to vote. They have no say in legislation. They have no say in community. They have no say except for whatever happens in their own personal space. Right. And so to play a character, I, 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 again, I think it's amazing that Guillermo wrote a character that's so carefree that is, she's, she has a lot of light and it's not at all about her color. And she's just lamenting to her best girlfriend about the problems with her husband. And I gotta tell you, it's so freeing. It was just like, oh, thank you. I know people are gonna have a problem with me playing a character from this period, but this is a character that I have no problem playing from this time period. God, it's wild to think that that is so rare for you. Mm-hmm. And I would think too that that you, I don't know, when I think back over the movie, I can't think of a single instance where race came up. Like the way Michael Shannon treats both you mm-hmm. and Sally and the way that you're treated as women and as, as sort of blue collar versions in that area are, mm-hmm. it's oppressive and horrible. Yeah. But it's, it's, the treatment's no different for you than it is for her. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's why I, c- I couldn't believe how he wrote this and, and, and the other other, the big other, instead of it being about black versus white versus Latino, the big other is the creature. He's the big unknown. He's the big, you know. So he's the one that feels all of the discrimination. Exactly. Exactly. Isn't that funny? I never thought of that, but but he's the one that no one cares to understand and chains up and treats like a slave, to tell you the truth. So to see all of those elements played out in what is when you it's an assault of the senses. I mean, just beautifully. I, I, when I, the, that opening sequence when you're sitting there and everything's floating and it's just like you're in another world. I, I, I've always loved Guillermo movies because I felt like he always did something very innovative, something that, that was unique and, and only his voice. I think he superseded all of his, uh, uh, surpassed everything he's ever done with this one. I agree. I think it's so beautiful and so its own tone and its own world and mm-hmm. it, it's a beautiful film. I agree. Before we move off of it, I wanted to pick something back up that we were just talking about, uh, about playing across from an actor who's not using any words. Mm-hmm. Was rehearsal a bigger element in this film than, than on some of the other films you've been on? We had three weeks of rehearsal because not only did we um, rehearse with each other, but as you see, Sally's, uh, she's walking and chewing gum in this movie. She has sign language, then she had dance routines, um, right. swimming, diving, climbing. Holding so your breath. All of that stuff that she had to do. So she had, her, um, her rehearsal uh, period was very different from the rest of ours, but we all rehearsed together. Except Michael Shannon only rehearsed with us a little bit because Guillermo wanted to keep him isolated. Keep him a little scary. Yeah, but yeah, the rehearsal process was was very unique. Um, and we all had our own little pods of, of rehearsal. They're the big okay. group, and then Sally and I, and then Sally and Richard, because they had different things that they sure. had to do together. But yeah, it was imperative um, that we have uh, a lot of time together. Do you like rehearsal? I mean, is that something that's a luxury for an actor? The only time that you really get a lot of rehearsal is when you're on a, in a play, um, which I love the rehearsal process because that's when you discover 
all of the beautiful intricacies about your character. Um, so yes, I, I do enjoy the rehearsal process. I don't like to over-rehearse performances. I like the analysis of a script, breaking down a script, uh, walking through some of the scenes, but not necessarily full out performing them, because I think there's something to be said about discovering things when the scene is on its feet. Really? Mm -hmm. And something that you may come across that you can't get back later? That you can't get back. And then you, you know, if, if you found something that you loved in, in rehearsal and the director says, I really like what you did in rehearsal when you did. And it's like, look, I was in the scene. I don't know what I did. So right. that's why I'm like, let's not go full on. Let's get up to that point. Let's get up, you know, let's just, let's jog. And then when we actually are working, then we can do a full out run. But I'd rather jog and see what's on the trail if I'm going to hurt my ankle because there are pebbles or things. You know, I like to jog a little bit. But in real life, we know I don't like to jog. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who likes to jog? No, nobody no, likes to I'm jog. I'm a walker. I don't okay. understand people who run. I don't get it. I don't it's, get it either. It's just pain with every step. I mean, seriously. Is there any insecurity that goes along, though, with that of, of okay, I'm in rehearsal and here's the director. Um, if I don't go, f if I don't go full out, maybe they'll lose faith in me. Like, do you ever have that fear? Like, I'm gonna be fired if I don't show them all I got. I used to when you first start out because you only have one day or two days uh, to, and and that's the other thing that being on this side versus being back when I first started. You only as a day player, that's your day. So the director the producers, no one has time to tell you how to do your job. Right. You come in and it's full, you're, you're at a thousand percent all the time. And I, I am at a thousand percent when they say, you know, uh, action. I'm at a thousand percent. Um, but I'm also, I, I want to see myself as a piece of soft clay, you know, malleable in that moment because where you think you might be going, whatever your character's doing, you have to react off of that. So I don't like to have things in my head. I like to know who the character is down to, you know, she doesn't like peanuts or she likes, pe you know, just so that I can be ready to react and live in the moment as it's actually happening. But rehearsal certainly gets you prepared for that because the more you rehearse, the more you can go home and go, oh my God, I liked this and this is why she did that. I think she did this because of that. So that when you're having those conversations on set, when you're involved in a, in a scene, everything comes from an organic place. So you're building that as it goes and Build finding little pieces. Yes, right? yes. I would wonder about playing a character with the same job as a character you'd played before. Mm -hmm. In this case, uh, you're a cleaning person. Mm -hmm. Is it harder to wipe the slate clean and build an original person when you've played the character? Well, before? see, I've never or, played or this played woman. played the job. I played the job. Well, I've actually, here's the thing. A janitor makes more than a cleaning lady. See, a janitor makes a, a by the hour. Cleaning lady makes a flat rate. So, Very different. So uh, you you made that distinction. Oh yeah, head. no, I did all the the. You know, it's a very different, you know. Uh, she's still a subordinate, someone subordinate. It's still a um, uh, a job uh, that people consider the people who provide that type of work as invisible, unfortunately. Um, but I think it's noble work, especially if you're not, you know, committing crimes. So for me, I I I, I would I played a nurse. <sighs> I can't even count, maybe 
30, 40 times. Really? And I finally had to say, guys, no more nurses. Unless she's a serial killer nurse. 30 or 40 times. <laughs> unless she's, in, she's doing something right. that she's never done as a nurse, I can't do it again. And yeah. then like, we'll make you a doctor. I'm like, can we just not make a medical at all? <laughs> you know? But um, I chose to do this because even though um, it's set in the 60s and she's a cleaning lady, she is very different from Minnie Jackson yeah. and yeah. Com- uh, complete opposite of, of, of Dorothy Vaughn. Right. Your mom was a maid, right? My mom, at one point, that was one of the jobs that she had. She had several jobs that yeah. she had. Was your house spotless? Yes. That and was part and of the she deal. didn't, no, no, honey, she didn't clean it. We did. <laughs> really? She's not going to come home from work to a, 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 a dirty home. No, we did that. Wow, it sounds like you got your work, work ethic from her. I did get my work ethic from her. See, people would say if, if things did, if, if this whole business, well, actually, it did happen. When um, our industry went on strike, I went back to a day job. Did you really? What did, I did you do? I worked at a market research company. I mean, I'm the type of person, I like to pay my bills. Right. I like to have money in my pocket. I like to look at you and know that I don't owe you money. And I'm not just sitting around, if I do owe you money, not trying to pay you back. That's who I am. I don't, honey, if, 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 if all of this goes south, I would not have a problem working in uh, the private sector and a very public job at, you know, some fast food restaurant. I, I, it's not who I am. I'm all about being able to do what I love to do. If it still maintains the life that I have built for myself, I'm not above it. I mean, I've always been the type of person who liked to earn my keep. Just don't get a job at Marie Callender's. Well, if Marie Callender is going to give me some, some <laughs> stock, <laughs> if she gives me stock and free meatloaf, uh, you know, that I eat, uh, meatloaf and pies, I, I would do it, Marie, and a good salary. <laughs> I, I Something's got to go very south for, some, for me to show up at Marie Callender's and have you taking my order. I'll be, on the fr- I'll be managing the place. Uh, okay. I'm, okay, I'm good. a management type. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. You know, if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that Helix Sleep has been a sponsor of ours for a number of years. But before they came on as a sponsor, I decided to take their personalized sleep quiz and try out their whole service. And I will tell you that since doing that, I have had the best sleep of my life. I got the mattress shipped to me from Helix Sleep. They have a 100-day no-risk guarantee. I tried all of that. But by the second or third day, I was already feeling the benefits of this mattress. And funny enough, I've always been a guy who thought I should have a firm mattress. But when I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, it recommended a medium mattress. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I was a little skeptical. But ever since sleeping on this mattress, I have never had better sleep in my life. And I'm here to tell you that it's a great company. They make a great product and they can help you find the mattress that works best for you. So here's what it's all about. They make personalized mattresses right here in America, and they ship them straight to your door with free no-contact delivery, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. To choose a mattress, Helix made this quiz that takes you just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So if you like a mattress that's really soft or really firm, if you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, or you sleep really hot, with Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and everybody's unique taste. So like I said, I was matched with a medium mattress and I also got the cool mattress because I tend to get hot and I'm also a side sleeper. 
And since then, I've found that I get longer sleep, I dream more, I wake up less, and in general, I'm just more comfortable. And the other benefit for me is that I've had a lot of lower back problems in my life, and since getting this mattress, I don't have that lower back issue that I often had waking up in years past. So I love my mattress, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2020 by GQ, Wired Magazine, and Apartment Therapy. So if you want a better night's sleep, go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I'm guessing you will. And here's the best thing. For listeners of our show, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $200 off your mattress order. Thanks, and now back to the show. I read a transcript of a commencement speech that you gave to Kent State University. Yeah. And it got me thinking... The fact that you're getting up in front of a bunch of people who are about to start their lives, right? Mm -hmm. And the way you sort of structured your speech was you were taking responsibility for hopefully giving them the keys to success or, or how, to, how to make their dreams come true or whatever. And that's quite a responsibility. And, and I wondered when you sat down to go, okay, I got to write this speech, what did that bring up for you? Like, like how did you organize that in your head? It's really, the first thing is, to let to really applaud the effort to let them know that they've done something that so few people get to do and that is complete college and from a great college and, yeah, and so yeah, you yeah. have to allow that moment to sink in that you made a great achievement but let me just tell you from my perspective what you don't want to do but here's a funny thing nobody ever wants to hear what you don't want to do they want to make their own mistakes but to me you know on this side of things, if I can offer a little wisdom uh, to make someone, if, I, if out of those, uh, you know, six, seven thousand people that were right. there, if 10 people heard me and said, you know what, I'm going to stop looking at the, the list saying that Joe Blow, who was also in my class, now he's working for this, that and the other. I'm going to stop looking at those statements and those announcements because it's making me feel bad. Um, if, if I can deter that type of behavior and then, uh, you know, just treat it as a if you live in a city that has hov lanes, you know, uh, yeah, like carpool, the, carpool. If yeah. you have the if you have carpool lanes. You got to be very careful and pay attention to the carpool lane. If you're over here looking at what at what's going on in somebody else's lane, you're going to run into somebody in your lane. So if you just stay in your lane, you're going to be okay. Right. It's okay to glance around a little bit, but if you're constantly looking around to see what other people are doing, you're going to crash. That's a great analogy because I think you're just you're kind of describing sort of exactly what every actor goes through mm -hmm. because the system is set up to compare yourself to others. Exactly. The audition process is set up yeah. to compare yourself to others. The, the typing of an actor is set up that way. Mm -hmm. Like, did that come from hard-worn experience that you found yourself doing that? I, at first, but, but here's the wonderful thing. I'm kind of a, a rare person in that I knew that I was successful the very first time somebody paid me to be an actor. I'm like, they're paying me to do it! 
<laughs> oh my God. So I, uh, I thought I was successful then and then I knew that I could build on that. And the other thing is for character actors, it's very different in the waiting room than for lead actresses. How so? Lead actresses get into each other's head. Oh, and they they're, do. Yeah, they're, it's true. They're, they're dressed and they don't make eye contact or they make eye contact. It's like a waiting room to see a gynecologist, quiet and very sterile. Whereas when you're in a room with character actors, black, white, Latino, it's like you're sitting at sipping a, party, a tea at somebody's house and you get to know each other. Why do you uh, think that is? I, I think the insecurity level is higher because there's a lot riding on whether or not you're going to get that lead role. Right. And, you know, for me, I just remember seeing roughly the same group of women all the time. So, you know, if you didn't get the job, Oh, well, I like such and such. Rosemary got the job. Okay, great. Okay, Yvette got the job. Great. I like Yvette. And then I got the job. So we, you know, we, it, it was, you know, ratio. You would, you would, at some point we would all book something. That's so interesting. I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. When so much is riding on you becoming a star versus you working, mm-hmm. the intangibles that make you a star, no one really knows what they are, exactly. right? Exactly. So exactly. you are, you do find yourself maybe comparing yourself. and It's really tough. And, and for me, um, I have, I was about to say had, but I still have, you know, um, the same group that we started out with. Melissa McCarthy, Alice and Janney, my friend base. Right. You know, we, we just look after each other. It's hard enough for a white you know, dude mm-hmm. to get work as an actor. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a high risk, low reward mm-hmm. position to take. Mm-hmm. And, and especially speaking to a bunch of college students um, who, who want to go out and, and try something improbable, mm-hmm. right? But then for you, I would think like, no one is looking at that going, that's a sure bet. That's honey, a safe nobody, bet. people were, excuse me, honey, you're blocking, you're blocking Halle Berry. Step over. <laughs> you know, nobody was looking for me. And that's the thing. I'm like, good. I'm glad that you're not looking for me. Because when I get there, you're going to want me. And because you didn't want me before, my price is doubled. So that's good for me. You know, I'm a businesswoman. But, Did you but, have people trying to talk you out of, of? Oh, God. I was told by someone very close to me at the time, Octavia, you shouldn't go to Hollywood. Hollywood is for the beautiful people. You're kidding me. Mm-hmm. I said, that's got to feel terrible. No, I just smiled because I knew in 10 years they were going to try to claim my success, you know. Right. Well, I mean, what is that, though? Because I'm sure you went through periods of not working and periods of not having money. And what, what do you think kept you going? I, I went through periods of not having a lot of work. But from the day that I said, guilty, guilty, we won, we won in A Time to Kill, every year I had jobs as an actor. But if I didn't keep my day job, if I didn't keep my work ethic, if I didn't keep uh, a source of income that kept, you know, me vital, you know, uh, then perhaps I, I would have gotten turned off because I wouldn't have been able to make ends meet. Um, but I kept my day job. I kept I wrote so that I could continue to feel um, as a as a as a creative person. You have to create. Right. I worked on my friend's short films. Uh, I made myself busy and then jobs would come around. So failure was never, ever a thought that entered my mind. It's such a beautiful way to look at it, because I think if you look at it with these stakes of, 
you know, this expectation that you're going to be at a certain place at a certain time, or that once you have, say, that recurring role for a while and mm -hmm. you finish, if you don't have the stomach to go back to doing regular work, or if you think you should now be somewhere delusional <laughs> and you're talking yourself out of your own success. Right. Uh, so you just never know where opportunities are going to come from. And you have to be proactive in creating those opportunities. Be a nice person. No one wants to work with an asshole. Yeah. You know, show up on time. Know your material. Uh, be kind to the crew people because I can guarantee you they're making a lot less money than you are. Yeah. And that was the other thing. By working on sets and understanding um, the hierarchy of things, now as an actor, I make sure I take care of my crew. You know, it, hey, getting a coffee truck may not mean something to a lot of people, but it says to your crew, I appreciate that you were out there in that, you know, below 20 degree weather with us. Yeah. And we're going to get you this hat. It may not mean anything to anybody but you, but we were all in it together. I, 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 that's who I am as a person. And I think that's why you love people like George Clooney, because you hear those stories. He takes care of his crews, you know? Absolutely. You know, and you've been on the other side of it. Because mm -hmm. weren't you working for a casting director when you got your first role? I interned. Uh, Francine and I are still friends. I, um, she was so amazing because she knew that I was an actor. Yeah. And I never asked her to audition for anything because I didn't want to complicate things at the job. But was it a, it was a casting? Well, when I, when I moved here, I was an intern for her, but I was working for a casting director. She, she did the um, location casting and the extras casting. Okay. And for, so. Uh, for a time to for, kill. For a time to kill. And we did, we did it for other movies as well. But did you understand that that was a smart move to go work in that world? Like, was that sort of a stealth move on your part or accidental? No, it, it was accidental. And, and I'm glad that I did, uh, that it happened for me that way, that right. I was working behind the scenes. That's why, you know, they do tell you, start in the mailroom. That was my mailroom. Yeah. Um, just learning the business that way and understanding it and understanding uh, that every department has a role to play. Every person has a right. role to play. No movie can be made with just actors and directors. Right. But did you find out kind of at the same time how... People are typed really quickly, and, and I did. Like that must have been a, that must have been a hard realization, I would think, because if the first job you get, you're a nurse, right? Mm -hmm. And and you're told you're a nurse. Mm -hmm. Like, how did that how did that go down? That that you were. Typed? It's still going down. <laughs> Do you still is, feel that? Well, I mean, true. I mean, think about it. There are only a, a few archetypes that women are allowed to play, and then when you look at my physicality. There are two, really, that people want to see me play constantly, and that's the nurturer or the sassy black woman. So I am like, I don't want to be either one of those in, my, in, the, in the TV job that I um, am doing full time. I don't want to be either one of those. Right. I don't want to be anybody's nurturer, and I definitely don't want to be sassy. So that, you know, because it, it, but those are those, you know, it's, it's, and everybody wants you to either nurture kids or nurture society or I'm like, I have no wisdom. I only, <laughs> I'm not wise. It's, I'm not wise. <laughs> but it's amazing to see that, like to have your big break happen at the same time that that happened, right? Yeah. Like, like were you told to your face, like this is what you're good at, this is what you should go for? Or? No, but you know what I have is I have an, a, a really aggressive 
team and they know the type of stuff that I want to do. So we have been very meticulous um, in our choosing. And and, uh, if it weren't this Guillermo project, I can guarantee you I probably would never play another cleaning lady. But I wanted this part with this director because he's iconic in, a, in, in the horror genre. And I knew that he was returning to his, his element, his wheelhouse in The Shape of Water. But we've been very good about not repeating um, uh, characters and character types. Right. Except and that's hard because they're... <laughs> the nurses all came before, you know, before we hit that moment of uh, taking us to the next level. At least you can probably do CPR at this point. Or. I, I, I could take all of your vitals. I mean, I, I well, could. Well, maybe after the show we'll do that because I've been feeling a little tired lately. Maybe Me we too. Can. I, can, I, can't, I actually can't take your blood, though, but I can check. I can check everything. Okay. All right. Well. I'll check you out. Well, okay. So I read something crazy, and I have a hard time believing it, but, but I've read it in like three different places that you have occasionally intense bouts of stage fright. Oh, not occasionally. Every time I, uh, if you hear, I'm going to tell you a little secret. Not only stage fright, whenever you see me on a carpet, I'm always dripping with sweats. Like um, any award show any, type any, thing any, I, I, premiere? It's just anxiety. It's, it's, I am a person, I mean, I'm, I'm not shy in the sense of I, I have a hard time talking to people. I have a hard time walking to into a very crowded, frenzied situation. Really? So whenever I step out of a car and there's lights flashing and you know cameras and people screaming, you know, look over here, look over here, my heart just just literally starts like I, I want to get off that carpet as soon as possible. Really? Yeah. And then whenever I have um, to do any type of public speaking, um, I'm always a nervous wreck. Until I am out there for at least, you know, <laughs> when you're on a stage where you're introducing something, a clip of something, you're only on stage for 30 seconds. Right. So that first five seconds that you're out there, the knees are just like, they don't, they don't bend. And does that also happen in front of a live audience, like say on a stage play? Mm-hmm. Or? Which is why we don't do, uh, you know, the, the best money is half hour television. And I love comedy, but I do not love audiences. So Mama has chosen not to do. <laughs> so not even not even a live audience on a on a sitcom. Mm-mm. Forget a, a theater because didn't you do a Del Shores play once? I did a Del Shores play once. That and was and one what was that feeling like? Uh, like is that when you really discovered like this isn't working for me? No, no. I've always known. I, I um, to get scholarship money. I I used to do. Uh, speeches. Yeah. And I was always terrified when it was my turn to go up. Um, so that, and that never goes away. I mean, uh, it, it, you control it because um, you know you have to do your job, but you know, it, it never goes away. God, it's so funny. It's like, it's like hearing from a pilot that they have a fear of flying. Or something. I don't ever want to know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? I don't like, ever want to know that. <laughs> like, y- you've clearly chosen a path for yourself that that is riddled with anxiety. That's so true. I never thought about a pilot being scared to fly. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, there is, to be an actor, to go up, to receive an award, to speak at a college, to mm-hmm. go on stage to play, I mean, those are things that 
that actors do, mm-hmm. you know, and you've chosen like, even though it's that hard for you, like I would be afraid, you know, when you're young, I'd be afraid that you would think like, oh, this isn't something I should be doing because I get so scared. Like, did you get scared even in school when you were in drama club and stuff? Absolutely. So why, why do you think you kept at it? Because if you're terrified of everything and you don't venture out and try to get past that fear, you will never accomplish anything, not anything. So when I tell you I'm the most neurotic person you will ever know, I am, and I own that. There was a time that I used to, it would be a great source of shame, but I'm like, okay, I'm a nutball. I'm nutty. That's who I am. You know, before I never had the freedom of saying, okay, look, guys, I'm dyslexic. I need the script. I need all of this stuff that they're supposed to give us well in advance of when they want to give it to us. And I'm going to be a burr up somebody's butt until I get everything. Until I get everything, I'm going to be a burr up somebody's butt. And then when I get everything that I need so that I can do, go through my process of making sure I know all of the words, all of the intentions that the writer has for the character, then I'm free to do the job. So whether I'm nervous or not, is it's not the problem. If I'm not prepared is the problem. So do you have rituals even on the day? Mm-hmm. when, Like say when you're coming to set on Shape of Water or whatever, Hidden Figures, what is sort of your ritual to get you in a place where you can be comfortable? I'm never nervous on a set because I'm not there to entertain them. If, a, if, if there's an audience there, they wanna be entertained. The people who are on the set, they're fixing lights. They're, ch- you know, they're, they, they could care too. <laughs> they, they don't give a second thought to you except what their job is. If their right. job is sound, that's what they're paying attention to. If their job is makeup, that's what they're paying attention to. They're not looking at me as Octavia. They're looking at me as an actor that they are responsible for, for whatever job it is. So right. if I'm there to entertain you, I want to make sure you're entertained, which is why I don't like people to visit me on sets. Oh, really? Because then, I, then you have to be entertained, and I have to take that on. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really like visitors. That's interesting. Well, you mentioned a second ago that you have dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And I find this to be amazing, too. Again, with the, the pilot who's afraid of flying, you wrote a book. You yeah. wrote two books. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is how I found out about this. I have two daughters who are 10 and 11, and they found your book. Oh. They didn't know who Octavia Spencer was. Oh. And my first daughter read it, and she's like, this is great, and gave it to my younger daughter who wants to be a writer. She read it, and then she went off and wrote a 93-page detective story. And she wrote it, she chaptered it out, she wrote a whole book. She was so moved by your, and it's this, you write this Randy Rhodes series, and, and it's sort of like that age of girl, right? Mm-hmm. Around middle school or just before middle school. And they love your books. Oh my God. Yeah, and, and so, I started, you know, sort of looking at them because when I was a kid, I loved the Hardy Boys. Me too. You I did? Read, I've read every Hardy Boy book. You're kidding me. And that, I would reread them and that's amazing. Every Hardy Boy, every Nancy, Nancy Drew. Drew. Yeah. 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 My sister read Nancy Drew and I read the Hardy Boys. And imagine my surprise later when I found out they were written by the same person. I know. Franklin right? W. Dixon wrote and The Guys gave- and Ca- <laughs> Carolyn Keene. Carolyn Keene. Same person. Same person, yeah. Okay, so what was the impetus for writing writing a children's book or a mystery well for me i mean mystery is a genre that i live in i mean i honestly can't go to sleep at night without watching uh, you know uh, a you know mystery show um but it's all usually true crime but for me i uh, my reading life um was saved by um my second 
first or second grade teacher. Ms. Bradford was my first grade teacher, Ms. Bradford. And I remember her introducing me to um, Encyclopedia Brown. Oh, yeah. And always telling me that you have to make sure you pay attention to everything because you don't know what is going to be a clue. And so as a, as a dyslexic... That, let me just jump in for a second. That sounds like something you could tell an actor about a script. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or about the set or about absolutely. your wardrobe. Or... Uh, absolutely. Interesting. But imagine, see, what, what dyslexics, if you have what I call false starts with books, you pick it up and you just can't, you can't, you can't break into it. You can't penetrate you can't, it. You just really can't, you can't penetrate it. You, you, for some reason, it's not resonating. Words are jumbling up way too quickly. And then when your brain starts switching things around, you're like, okay, I don't want to do this. But because if you're involved in a mystery, and, you know, if things start going south, is what I call it, in my brain, I'm like, I, you gotta, I gotta let this ride out, I gotta let this ride out because I wanna know what happens, I wanna know what happens. And so you, you stay engaged, and it kept me engaged um, with the narrative. And so I wanted to uh, put all the things that I loved in one place uh, for kids in the form of mysteries. And for me, I love martial arts, yeah. and that's why they're ninja detectives. Yeah. And I love detective work, and I love uh, crime scene investigation. So I worked with a real crime scene investigator to actually do procedural work that we put in the back of the book so that kids could learn how to do a couple of the techniques, like lift a fingerprint or uh, make a cast a footprint, cast of a footprint. Right. But then there are the other fun things like you know, cooking, because I don't know how to cook, but things that you could do fun with family and friends. So I just combined all of those things that I liked and put it in a mystery novel for kids. Wow. Yeah, when, when I hear you saying that, because I don't have dyslexia, so I don't know what it feels like, mm-hmm. but I do know in the people that I've talked to that, that often they have been mistaken for kids who weren't as smart as other kids, mm-hmm. or they ended up getting in trouble more because of that same thing, they'd have a false start with something and mm-hmm. they'd, they'd be like, screw it, I'm just gonna. I'm just not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna do yeah. it. Did you, like, did reading save that situation for you or did you, was there a period when you felt slower than the other kids or felt like? I never felt slower than the other kids. That's the funny thing. I just knew that there was something going on with my brain and the way it processed information. Because the funny thing is I was actually tested for the gifted program. Um, they played to my strengths, which, um, uh, you know, dealing with puzzles and figuring puzzles out. And right. I would always be the first one done. And my teacher was like, what's happening? You know, you get puzzles as a, an exercise. And so that played to my strength. Doing mazes, all of that kind of stuff played to my strength. And so I was tested for the gifted program. So my teacher knew that I wasn't, you know, uh, I don't like to use the word, but she knew that I was uh, not a slow learner. Right. It was more like uh, fifth or sixth grade that I found out. Oh, really? And, and because I, you know, you, you also have coping mechanisms. Because here's the thing, I had my mother, so there were, there was never a choice to not do homework. There was never a choice. To, if I don't understand, I have to ask an older sibling. So like, she didn't know you had dyslexia at that time. My, my teachers didn't know, my mom didn't know. I just, it took me a longer time to complete homework at home. It t- the one thing, when it became apparent is when we had to do um, reading aloud, and I, have, I still hate doing table reads 
to this day. Really? I hate table reads. Um, but reading aloud, um, you know, and I would always mispronounce words, uh, like just say them, uh, you know, if it were evil or something, I would say live. Or, and I'm like, I don't understand why, what this word is. It's a B. And so she realized then that there was something going on with my brain, uh, not how I, you know, retained information or um, um, how I, uh, I don't know, understood things. Right. Uh, but yeah, and so that's one of the reasons also that I wrote this book to tell parents, hey, look, I, do you know that a lot of creatives, there are a lot of people in this industry who are dyslexic? There are a lot of us, famous people. Yeah, you do wonder if there's a correlation between thinking outside of a box mm -hmm. and also not understanding the instructions on the box. Right, and, 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 and I don't even want to deal with the box. Cause right. You know, right. But, but the wonderful thing is, you know, um, we're visually inclined. And so that's why you have people with dyslexia who like, who are directors of photography, who are directors, you know. Um, for me, I, uh, the, thing, the other thing that, that when there were long periods of time uh, where I wasn't, uh, where, where I didn't have auditions, I would write to just stay busy and stay creative while I kept my day job. Does dyslexia crop up with writing like it does with reading? It does, but it also, you know, the ADD part happens then mm. for me. It's just like in college, if I knew I had a paper, I would procrastinate. I would do all of my research and, and pile everything up in nice, neat piles. And then I would sit down to write. And just as we're sitting here now, if I see I'm looking down, you know, trying to come up with the first thought of, you know, and I see Lent, I would get up, okay, I got to clean the room. <laughs> because, you know, so the I, I know that my floor, everything has to be in its place. There cannot be anything out of place. And I have to wear shiny rings really? when I write because if I'm looking at my hands, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. So shiny, because otherwise I'll zone out uh, and not, it's, it's crazy. It's just wow. how my brain works. You don't meet a lot of dyslexics who love reading. But I wonder if, if the mystery novels kind of set you free. That's exactly. That. I, I don't like reading a lot of other stuff. And so my, I, I get really nervous when people, I have a script I'd love for you to read. And is it a mystery? Because, you know, I, I'll read a mystery. But that I can honestly tell you, yes, mysteries are, are the reason why I love reading. And they're like, no, it's, it's about a nurse with a heart of gold. Yeah, and I'm like, ah, well, there, there's no, nobody killed her. I don't have to get to figure out who killed her. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not, it's not, not for me. Well, God, you know, um, it, it's interesting. In the book, uh, she, uh, Randy Rhodes loses her mom. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that was specific or if that was another. I lost my mom when I was 18. And I lost my dad when I was 13. And I realized that uh, the faces and compositions of families are, are really different today than perhaps when I was growing up. Um, and so it was about dealing with loss because we all deal with loss and we're dealing with loss at different ages in our lives. So it was about um, her being a girl and having to deal with her father who, um, you know, his job as a writer, writing is also a very solitary job. So now he has to, you know, find time, make time for her, the time that she would have been spending with her mom. 
And it's all about the, the growing pains of that and how girls and dads uh, communicate with each other. And, um, and, but also about, just about experiencing loss and talking about uh, that loss. It's interesting that you would, you would make it the relationship between her and her father when you mm -hmm. lost your own father and didn't mm -hmm. have that relationship. Right. Because up until when you were 18, I'm sure you had a really close relationship with your mom, but you didn't mm -hmm. have one with your dad. I did not have a relationship, a close relationship with my dad. But see, it's also about, it, I, 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 for me, I'll tell you, because there are a few things um, that are societal in, in the book, because believe me, I got a lot of flack when people say, why is your protagonist a white girl? And I had just read Whoopi Goldberg's ballerina series, and it's all about a little black ballerina. And I've read a few books that had black female protagonists, uh -huh. but never have I seen, and if there's some out there, I need somebody to bring it to me. I've not seen uh, black boys, and, and I knew that I, my, I wanted my story to be about a girl, and because I, I want girls to know that they can be leaders. Right. And I want girls to know that they can have power in their physicality with, with you know, something like Taekwondo. So I said, okay, so I know it's gonna be a girl. I don't know if it's gonna be a white girl, Asian girl, Latina girl, I don't know. And then I said, wait a minute, I definitely know that it's gonna be about a group of three kids. And one of those kids is going to be a black boy. And that way I can get to play his mom in the movie version. Um, but you know, anyway. But <laughs> if anyone's listening. If anyone's listening. Um, but then I, I, I started thinking about um, what, girl is ever treated like the other and what girl is ever treated uh, differently because of the way she looks. And I remember one of my dearest friends, little redheaded girl, Freckly, and we used to always talk about her childhood and, and I'm thinking, it's gonna be a redheaded girl. You know, that's so interesting that you would look at who's the other and mm -hmm. you would pick a white redheaded girl. A little white redheaded girl um, because they're, they are um, the mi they're minority. And so, so, and then I rounded it out because I knew the other other would, would be um, a Latino boy. And so I, that's why I chose these, this group of kids because they each represent other. And when they work together, and, and one of the kids, the uh, Dario DC, he is hearing impaired and he's ashamed. Each of these kids is ashamed of something. Pudge is a, he's a, he's a <laughs> he has a name of a chubby kid, but he's really skinny because he was a fat baby. Um, and now he's really skinny. So he's kind of ashamed of being a very skinny kid. Um, and uh, DC is ashamed of, of his hearing aid. But Randy's character lets him know that, you know, that's your superpower. You can read lips. You can tell us what those people across the room are saying. Right. We can't do that. So it's all about turning your challenges into your super strength. What was the most unexpected thing that came out of sitting down and figuring out how to, how to do something as monumental as writing a book? Do you like the solitary? I don't. I do and I don't. It's, it depends on where I am in my life. If, um, you know, I, I liked it because at the time my day job was constantly around people. So I loved those moments by myself. Um, but 
here lately, I realize that I've only done outlines and I've actually haven't put pen to paper um, because it means that I'm going to have to go through my ritual. I'm going to have to make myself sit still. And you have to put the rings on. Put the rings on, you know, <laughs> my, very Liberace. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's, it's impressive on a number of levels, you. you know, that the thing you're succeeding in is something that terrifies you at times. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that words and literacy, all that stuff could have been your enemy. Mm -hmm. And instead you're, you're, you're writing books. I mean, the fact that you're kind of going up to resistance and facing it and going, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to fall for this is, is impressive. Well, the alternative is I will be lying in a fetal position, never doing anything. That's why, I mean, it's, it's imperative for all kids to know that we are all afraid. Everybody's afraid of something, yeah. but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try it. Does it? You may not like it. Try it. You may not like it. So you tried it. And what you find is trying or doing the things that terrify you, you definitely feel stronger on the other side. Um, imagine this. I'm dyslexic. I hate live audiences, but I, I, I host a Saturday Night Live and you read cue cards and people are there. It was. Oh, yeah. That's uh, both of your nemesis, oh, your nemesi the at just, the same time. Yes. <laughs> How did you survive? That? Honey, ooh, I think I, the stress, I, it was kind of great because I think I lost like five pounds in three days. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but it was stressful. The Octavia Spencer diet. Just scare the crap scare out the of crap yourself. Out of <laughs> well, listen, it's been wonderful to get to know you a little bit. Thank you. And, uh, and I'm hoping you'll sign your book to my daughters and I can, I can bring it home and say, this woman says, do not get out of line with me. <laughs> Stay in your lane. That's right. I guess kids don't know what that means yet no. because they, they don't drive. No, no but uh, it's, it's, it's nice to meet you and, you know, to find out that there's this sort of driving force within you that, that like these things have happened not just through luck or not through any sort of accidents like you've pushed this all the way to this point and you have an amazing career and, thank and, you uh, it's, thank it's you. a joy to watch you work so thanks for coming and doing this well thank you for having me sam it's been fun Hey folks, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. And if you have a child who loves reading, check out Randy Rhodes' Ninja Detective because it's a great way to get your kids interested in mysteries and into reading. And it's just a great book. So check that out. And if you like what we're doing, you can become a subscriber, which means for $4.99 a month, you can watch every episode we've ever made that you can enjoy on any device at any time in its entirety just by subscribing. So check that out. And if you want to reach me and send me a letter, comment on the show, critiques, guest suggestions, or anything that's on your mind, I am sam at offcamera.com. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram and Sam Jones on Twitter. So tell the world about us and spread the word about Off Camera. I want to thank everybody that helps on this show. This show would not take place without the hard work and the talent of the following people. Crawford Shippey, our producer. Laura Kemper, who runs the studio. Nathan Shields, who edits and does sound. Michaela Galvin, who does graphic design and camera work. Kara Johnson, who transcribes all of our conversations. 
Amy Jones, who is our writer and proofreader and generally makes us look smarter. And of course, Matt Davidson, who keeps the spider webs out of every corner of the office. Matt, thank you for your hard work and for your simple dedication to the show. See you next time off camera.